0: Beautiful Leviticus chapter twenty this morning, church. Leviticus chapter twenty. I'm going to read probably. I think I said to verse thirteen. It's not a clean break there, but that's where I'm going to stop reading this morning. Um, I do want to say uh, I am. We are going to take another break next week because it's Family Sunday, and Leviticus twenty-one is just. Let's just say it's not the. It's not the. Uh, Uh, The worst chapter of Leviticus section we've been through so far as far as content appropriate for children. Uh, But it's still not uh, necessarily the best. And so we're going to take one more break and just punt till the beginning of of next week so that our kids can can come in service and not have to uh, ask their their parents too many questions. Um, But uh, this morning we'll be in Leviticus chapter 20. And let me start in verse 1 and I think I'm going to read to verse 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying again... You shall say to the children of Israel, whoever of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel, who gives any of his descendants to Moloch, that uh, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will set my face against that man and will cut him off from his people, because he has given some of his descendants to Moloch to defile my sanctuary and profane my holy name. And if the people of the land should in any way hide their eyes from the man when he gives some of his descendants to Moloch, and they do not kill him, then I will set my face against that man and against his family, and I will cut him off from his people and all who prostitute themselves with him to commit harlotry with Moloch. And then the person who turns to mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I will set my face against that person and cut him off from his people. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy. For I am the Lord your God, and you shall keep my statutes and perform them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. For everyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother, his blood shall be upon him. To the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he commits adultery with his neighbor's wife. The adulterer and adulteress shall surely be put to death. The man who lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. First Baptist Church of Great Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His word this morning. Gracious Father, we do ask that You would speak this morning. That you would address us from your word. Lord, that you would grant us ears to hear, eyes to see, and that you would conform our will to yours. We pray this in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Have you ever noticed if you tell someone not to look at something, right? Like... Don't look over there. What's the first thing they do? They look over there every single time. We, we learned early on as parents, if we wanted our kids not to look at something, the last thing we wanted to say to them was, Hey, Emmett, don't look over there. Because <laughs> the first thing Emmett is going to do, along with every child of ours, is look in that direction. This morning, what I want to show you is that's actually a lot like the law. That's actually what the law does. In fact, really, the the big idea of our passage today is that the law brings death because the heart is wicked. That's the big idea of Leviticus chapter 20. The law brings death because the heart is wicked. And obviously, this is a huge problem. Our passage today is going to help us understand why. And so as we look through it, we're going to be looking at three specific propositions. Did you notice your bulletin this morning, by the way? This is only because um, I, uh, I was sick of making errors in all of the bulletin, uh, the grammatical errors. So I kept it really short for you this morning. And then it turns out I wrote the entire thing in the New American Standard Version and had to go back and correct it. And so the Lord has humbled, uh, humbled me that way. Uh, but your bulletin this morning is very simple. Here are the three propositions. The first is Israel is to be holy before the Lord. The second is the law was powerless to make Israel holy before the Lord. And the third is that death and guilt were the result of the law among an unholy people. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't need to take notes this morning. Just come up with your own. But those are the three propositions. We're going to work our way through the text under those specific headings. Let's get started. First, we see Israel is to be holy. And just so we're all on the same page, what I mean by holy is I mean set apart unto the Lord. First and foremost, Israel was holy because the Lord had set them apart, uh, because, but Israel was also to be holy. That is, they were supposed to live lives that were distinct from the way the nations around them lived. They were to be different. They were to follow the statutes of the Lord and not the ways of the nations. Israel was required to be holy. And so we see that in our text. Look with me at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 20, and you'll see that very clear. In chapter 7, at the very beginning, we read, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. That's actually in parallel with the first part of verse 8. Look at the first part of verse 8, where it says, And you shall keep my statutes and perform them. These, These are parallel because they're really two sides of the same coin. How is Israel to be holy? By keeping the Lord's statutes and performing them. In verses 22 and 26, which we didn't read in the opening, but put your eyes toward them now. We read the exact same command. Look down at Leviticus 20 verse 22. It says, you shall therefore keep all my statutes and my judgments and perform them. And then again in verse 26, and you shall be holy to me. This was the command to Israel, they shall be holy before the Lord. And really, we have seen this over and over again, particularly in this section, which we call the holiness code in Leviticus 18 through 20. In fact, Leviticus 18 in in verses 3 through 5, we read this, according to the doings of the land of Egypt, where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you, you shall not do, nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments. Again, in Leviticus 18, starting in verse 24 and verse 26 and 30, it it repeats. It says, do not defile yourselves with any of these things. Verse 26, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations. Verse 30, therefore you shall keep my ordinance so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs which were committed before you and that you do not defile yourselves by them. This is a call to holiness. We we looked at the difference between the nations and Israel and, and that distinction was to be maintained as Israel together pursued holiness and obedience to the Lord. In fact, if we go to chapter 19, we see again chapter 19, verse 2, 19 and 37. Verse 2 says, you shall be holy. Verse 19, you shall keep my statutes. Verse 37, therefore you shall observe all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them. Over and over again in chapters 18 through 20. Now, why in the world am I beating this into the ground? Because that's what the Bible does. (laughs) There's a reason why it's repeated so often. We come to the Word, we often read those things that are repeated and we just skip right over them. We're like, why is this author repeating this? But it's supposed to be repeated. He's supposed to beat this in the ground because we struggle with this. The repetition of this command for Israel to be holy and keep the statutes of the Lord is seen clearly because it was crystal clear. It was to be undeniable. In fact, this call to be holy was stated negatively. It would be that Israel was to not keep the statutes and rules of the nations. Israel was to not follow their ways. And stated positively, Israel was to keep the Lord's statutes and follow His ways. So there could be no doubting, no denying that obedience and holiness was the expectation of Israel. Now, this isn't even just in chapter uh, chapters 18 through 20 of Leviticus either, is it? We've considered this topic time and time again as a whole. right? The, the context here is that this holy king is dwelling in the midst of an unholy people. Therefore, they have to become holy. Now, there's a way in which they've been made holy by the Lord, but now they have to learn to walk in obedience that they might be the holy people that God designed them and called them to be. In fact... That's the very first thing that the Lord said to them on Mount Sinai after they arrived. Through Moses, he said, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, he says these words, "...and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." So, so here, Moses is still saying the same thing to them. Forty years later, and on the plains of Moab, right before they enter the Promised Land, he's still saying the same thing. Moses is still talking about holiness, In Deuteronomy he does, until the day he dies, he continues to communicate this message to Israel. Why? Because it was the command of the Lord, it was the desire and intention of the Lord for his people to be holy. Of course, if we can even take that broader, we're really not surprised by this command for holiness, are we? This is... This is really the expectation of all people who are created in the image and likeness of God. Listen, the Lord does not have two standards. Call Israel out. I want them to behave one way. But the nations, I've kind of lowered the bar for them over here. And they can behave however they choose. Every person is to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every person is to love their neighbor as himself. We know that the Bible says, Jesus says, that all of the law hangs on those two hooks, and it goes out to all of humanity. Belonging to the nations did not remove this responsibility. Friend, your atheist neighbor is no less responsible to be holy before the Lord than you and I are. And so we see why this holiness is so important in our text, because holiness is keeping the Lord's statutes so that Israel would live. Leviticus 18, verse 5, we've seen this over and over again. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which, if a man does, he shall live by them. This, of course, is confirmed throughout Leviticus and Deuteronomy. An example, Deuteronomy 32, verse 47, we read these words. For it is not a futile thing for you, regarding the law, because it is your life. Moses, speaking the word of the Lord to Israel, says that this law, it's not just empty words to you, but it is your very life. In other words, your life depends on it. And by this word you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. Keeping the Lord's statutes. Being holy was the way for Israel to live long in the land and enjoy the Lord's blessing. But the same can be stated negatively. Not keeping the Lord's statutes therefore could lead to death. That's that's again explicit all throughout these last three chapters we've been examining. In chapter 18 Leviticus verses 26 and 28 it says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, verse 28, lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it. That, that's just a picture of the land being wiped clean of its current inhabitants. The Lord is saying the same exact thing will happen to you. The land will vomit you out if you do not obey my statutes, just as it vomited out the inhabitants before you. In verse 29 of Leviticus 18. For whoever commits any of these abominations, the person who commit, commits them shall be cut off from among their people. They shall be cut off from among their people. That's a reference, by the way, to premature death. In other words, they shall surely die. In chapter 20, again, it could not be more clear. They shall be put to death. Those who refuse to follow the Lord's statute surely shall be put to death. Now, of course, we as astute students of God's Word are not surprised by this, right? We, we don't get to, to chapter 20 and think, this is unimaginable. I can't believe they'd be put to death by breaking God's law. How does this happen? Why does this happen? I have no hook for this, right? No, because if we have all the scripture in mind, this is not shocking to us. Had God not warned Adam in the garden that the result of sin would be death? That that was the result of rejecting God's statutes. Disobedience always leads to death. That is, in fact, the right punishment for transgressing God's law. Here, we simply see that the standard has not changed in Leviticus. Holiness is still required, and disobedience still brings death. There's another reason for this high expectation for obedience, and I would actually argue that this is the priority. This is stated explicitly in the verses that command it. Read again verses 7 and 8 of our text. In chapter 20, it says, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. That's the first reason. Then verse 8. And you shall keep my statutes and perform them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. That's the second reason. In fact, we see the exact same thing in verse 26 of Leviticus 20, where the Lord says, And you shall be holy to me. Why? For I, the Lord, am holy. And have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. That is, I have sanctified you. Those are are the two reasons. The Lord is a holy God, therefore Israel shall be holy. The Lord had sanctified and separated them, therefore Israel shall be holy. And these two reasons, again, are given over and over again in chapters 18 through 20. In fact... The phrases are used six times in chapter 18, 15 times in chapter 19, that's almost every other verse in chapter 19, and four times in chapter 20. All of those expressions hammer home these two truths. Verse 26 also tells us something else really important. Not just the reasons for the holiness, but the intention of the holiness. What was it that this holiness was intended to accomplish? What end was it to bring about? We read at the end of verse 26, these words. That you should be mine. So that you should be mine. This is the intention of this call to holiness. Listen, this entire conversation about holiness, up to this point, it can almost sound a little cold and calculated, right? Obey the Lord because He's holy. He's made you holy so you just you need to be holy. But but listen, the proper context for this demand for holiness is the Lord's love for Israel. See see Israel was to be the Lord's treasured possession. That's the Lord's words, not mine. This was the Lord's intention from the beginning. As soon as He brings them to Mount Sinai, in that same passage where we looked at in Exodus 19, where He calls them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, He says this in verses 4 and 5 right before that, speaking to Israel. Look what He says. He says, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant... Then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Yeah, all the earth is mine. But, but he's also, in the midst of that, he's still saying something very different to Israel. In, in the same way I can say this. In the same way I can say that everybody here at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables is mine. Right? I, I love them and I care for them. I do not mean the same thing that I mean when I say that Amy is mine. I, I'm saying something very different. I'm saying something intimate. I'm expressing a love that goes beyond just a general care for creation or even for this beautiful, wonderful local church. I'm expressing a sincere commitment to a deep and abiding love for my wife. That's what the Lord's doing here with Israel, to be mine. He not only expresses this at Mount Sinai, though, but He also does it on the plains of Moab in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Look at this text. He says... For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. This is why, by the way, one of the most common metaphors we see time and time again for God's relationship to his people is marriage. Right? To express his love for his people. Israel was his special bride. He had chosen her and brought her to himself. Not because that Israel was deserving in any way, but only because of God's free love for her. And so Israel, therefore, was to be holy because they were deeply loved by God. He chose them. He redeemed them. He set them apart to be his treasured possession. He set his love on them. And this love relationship, it was the very intention of holiness. It's the proper context of holiness. Yes, Israel was to keep the Lord's statutes, to enjoy life and avoid death. Absolutely, that motivates some. But more importantly, Israel was married to a holy husband. A husband that loved her. Therefore, she should have desired holiness to reflect her husband's love. So, all that I just said has to be kept in mind, right? Just think about all of these things. I I want you to keep that in mind as we consider this next proposition, right? Number two, the law was powerless to bring this holiness about. The law was powerless. The rest of chapter 20 actually instructs the people on how they're supposed to respond when someone doesn't follow the Lord's statutes, which is anticipated. When they refuse to be holy, this is what is to be done. In fact, the big picture of chapter twenty is actually—it's actually kind of morbid, isn't it? I mean, if you read through it this week or just heard the portion that I read this morning, you could—you could almost hear how morbid it is. Just like we saw the chapter, the drumbeat of chapters eighteen and nineteen was "I am the Lord" over and over. Boom! I am the Lord. Boom! I am the Lord. Boom! I "I almost every other verse. This chapter over and over again is, boom, he shall surely be put to death. Boom, he shall surely be put to death. Boom, he shall surely be put to death. The only disruption of that beat is the counterpart to it, right? Which is, their blood shall be on their heads. Their blood shall be on their heads. Their blood shall be on their heads. Over and over again. Nine times we read some variation of they shall surely be put to death. Ten if you count the one where it says they shall be burned. Nine times we read, their blood is upon them, or some similar phrase. This repetition drives home the point that, that those who do not keep the statutes of the Lord, who choose to walk in the ways of the nations, shall surely die with their blood upon them. Listen, no substitutionary sacrifice, no guilt being transferred to another, no atonement could be made, no animal could be substituted. They would die with their bloods on their own head. But, but really, the, the big picture of chapter 20 is not only morbid, it, it's actually kind of depressing. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that Israel was depressed when they heard these words. Israel as a whole seemed to live in a constant state of denial to these words like the rest of humanity. They, they hear these words and self-deception just immediately creeps in. Right? You remember their response to the Lord at Mount Sinai and, and, and also on the plains of Moab? It's a great example of their naivety. Even after an entire generation has died, right, the word of the Lord is read to them on the plains of Moab as they're about to enter the promised land. These commands are declared, and the people of Israel respond with, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. They were like, yeah, yeah, no problem, God. Like, we, we were going to do that anyway. Like, of course we'll live like that. This is, by the way, this is after the wilderness, right? They're about to enter into the promised land. They have no evidence to believe that they're going to obey the covenant. And they still respond, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Both times, immediately following those declarations before uh, in Mount Sinai and on the plains of Moab, there is a demonstration of this just gross apostasy. In fact, what happens immediately after is they fail. So in Exodus 19 in Mount Sinai, they say, All the Lord has spoken, we shall do. You know what comes next? that golden calf incident, immediately. The next is just the book of Judges, right? Which is worse, I don't know. But all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, never materializes into anything that even closely resembles holiness. If holiness and obedience are required, many in Israel will surely be put to death. So, so chapter 20 doesn't really leave you with kind of this warm, fuzzy feeling, does it? It's not a chapter that, that fills people with a lot of hope and encouragement, is it? Actually, the, the picture is even darker when we expand it. When we look further than Leviticus, even in just its immediate context, the, the punishments are simply the prescribed action of the Lord to address the sin of God's people in Israel. But, but when we consider the rest of the story, especially what has come before it, specifically in Genesis, it only gets darker. I mean, God had warned Adam, Genesis chapter 2, the very beginning, right? God warned Adam in, in chapter 2, verse 16. He says, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now listen, in our text, when Israel hears this, this repeating drumbeat, you shall surely be put to death, they're, they're supposed to hear an echo of Genesis 2 and 3 and the, the fall. Again and again we realize that they shall surely be put to death is not just the consequence of some transgressions of ancient Israel way back when. But it's actually the consequence of every single person who transgresses God's law and rejects His holy command. Every single person who refuses to follow the statutes of the Lord and instead follows the nations can say, I will surely be put to death. To death. My blood is upon me. This is simply the inevitable consequence of sin against God. God had said, Surely on the day of you eat it, you shall die, and man's blood has been upon his head ever since. And that actually is our third proposition. Now, death and guilt were the result of the law among unholy people. Death and guilt were the result of the law among unholy people. So here, In Leviticus 20, here's what we're reminded when we read this, is that man's primary problem has not yet been addressed. If chapter 20 is the best antidote to my sin problem, then I'm in really big trouble. If this is as good as it gets, then I've got no hope. If we trace the story after the fall, God addresses their sin with a gracious promise. In Genesis 3, He says that one will come from Eve who will deal with the sin problem. But then, what do we read in the next chapter? We read the account of Cain and Abel, the first murder, fratricide. And we see that the promise has been made, the problem has not yet been fixed. We continue reading and we encounter Noah... And at this point in the story, the scene is so bad, every intention and thought of man's heart is bent on evil all the time. It so grieves the Lord's heart that he decides to wipe the entire earth clean. Yes, Noah finds grace in the eyes of God and praise God for that. But then, after the flood, in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, look what the Word says. God says, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. And we say, Yay! Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. See, the judgment of the flood didn't fix the problem. So we keep reading. God's working in redemptive history to bring about the salvation of his people. And we have as part of that, Israel being redeemed from Egypt, brought to Mount Sinai. Here, instead of a promise of judgment, we have redemption in the form of a covenant. And we say, yay, praise the Lord. But... Then we have the golden calf incident. We have refusal to trust God, followed by the death of an entire generation in the wilderness. See, even being redeemed from the physical bondage and being brought into relationship with God in a covenant didn't fix the problem. The reason? Because their redemption was only physical, The Lord had not yet redeemed them from their sin. He did not circumcise their hearts. And so Israel is brought out of Egypt. But every intention of their heart was still evil all the time. Nothing had changed up until this point in redemptive history. Furthermore, the covenant they entered into was governed by law. And the law just simply empowered sin. It was much like, don't look over there. The entire room just looks that way. Israel, don't do this. And Israel hears that and then slowly and surely moves in that direction. As Paul has said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56, he says, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Romans 7.10, the law could not fix the problem. In fact, Paul writes, And the commandment, which was to bring life... I found to bring death. So the law says no one should offer their children to the Moloch. And the fallen heart says, Who's Moloch? Where can I find him? The law says, You shall not commit adultery with the wife of your neighbor. And the depraved heart says, Who? Her? Man, she's she's beautiful. She would no doubt make me very happy. Or the depraved heart says, Me? Never, ever would I do that. Only immoral, horrible, disgusting people do those types of things. And then that same person withholds wages from his employees and changes his weights just a little bit. You know, to help with that profit margin. After all, he believes that God owes him a good life and a comfortable living. See, of course, we know that the prideful, self-righteous person is no better off in the eyes of God than the overtly wicked. So so what does the law do to fix the problem with man's sin? Absolutely nothing. The sin problem that so grieved God's heart that He flooded the entire earth, wiping out all but eight people, was still alive and well in Israel. And so they shall surely be put to death was a constant and real threat for an ancient Israelite. Their blood is upon them was a real concern or it should have been. Does the history of Israel not confirm this? An entire generation of Israelites died in the wilderness without seeing the promised land. And when they finally get to the promised land, they don't even make it further than Jericho before they're punished for their disobedience. There is, there is no event in the Old Testament, none, that ever resolves the issue or fixes the problem. Promises, yes, Signs or types that point us to the coming Messiah, yes. But a solution? No. The law is the closest we come. And in the end, it only proves to condemn Israel along with the rest of humanity. Now, if the the Old Testament is all we had, boy, we'd be done. I'd have nothing else for you, and this would become probably at least a top ten depressing sermon. But praise God, it's not. Instead, I get to take us back to Leviticus chapter 20 and say, you know what? It's actually not as dark and depressing as it first seems. Through the lens of the New Testament, Leviticus 20 is not dark and depressing at all, in fact. Through the lens of the New Testament, it actually shines like the noonday sun. It is full of light, joy, and beauty. Now, you may be thinking, are you? Are you going to change what we just read? Because what we just read didn't it actually seem more morbid and depressing, not beautiful, glorious. No, chapter 20 doesn't change. And And I'm not going to change what it means or says. It says everything we just talked about. It still declares that the wages of sin are death. It still declares that those who do not obey the Lord shall surely die. Their blood is still on their heads. This is still true not only for Israel but for all people. But... We have Jesus. And having Jesus, therefore, we have the one who never transgressed a single law, who never broke a single command. No, not one. Yet, at the end of his life, Jesus died so that we shall surely live. See, our blood was on his head so we shall not bear our iniquity Our blood shall not be on our head, for Jesus has borne it for us. And so when we read, they shall surely be put to death, we're reminded that it was Jesus who was put to death for us. And it's not something we have to put there, right? If if you know and follow Jesus, you cannot read Leviticus 20 without being reminded of Him. Because of Jesus, we will surely live. That is beautiful and glorious, even here in Leviticus 20, that is life-giving and really good news. Do you know what it means that your blood, guilt, consequences, and punishment was actually upon Him? It doesn't mean His guilt is upon you because He had none. What it means is His blood cleanses us from all sin, from both the guilt and power of sin. It breaks the chains. Therefore, we do not have law, but we have Grace. We have the blood of Jesus Christ and we are transformed slowly, yes, painfully, yes. But when we read Leviticus 20, we're not compelled by fear of death. We're not compelled to pursue obedience and holiness because we do not want to die. We don't read those commands and say, well, therefore, I must obey these because I don't want to be put to death. We should do that today. No, instead, when we read it through the lens of the Old Testament, we're compelled by love. Love. We want to be holy because God in Jesus Christ has become our treasured possession worth more than life itself. And so we do not simply read the law in chapter 20. We instead hear the sweet notes of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, given the state of our hearts and lives before Jesus Christ, who among us would deny that we deserve to hear You shall surely die, your blood is upon you. Even now, if we look at our thoughts just over the last hour, if we were to put every thought we had since the beginning of this worship service on the screens, who would not feel condemned or ashamed? It would be right if we all heard, You shall surely be put to death, your blood is upon you. But if you belong to Jesus Christ... If you trust, love, and follow Him, then we simply respond by singing praises to His name. Praise God. Now, I could stop there, but there's even more. I want you to see something. I want you to see that in in, in verse 26, in Jesus Christ, verse 26 is fulfilled. Look at verse 26 with me. It says, And you shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. Remember all that we heard when we considered what, what this meant about Israel. But this is actually fulfilled in Christ. It, it's not an intention, it's not a future prospect. It's reality. And when I say it's fulfilled, I mean it is completed in a way that it never was in Israel. We shall be holy, and you shall be uh, holy. Mind you, are both present realities for the people of God with future, future certainties. So I, I just want to conclude with this thought. I just want us to think about what we just said. You are mine is a true statement in Christ. You can, you can hear that and read it in verse 26 and say, that's me because of Jesus. We belong to God as a bride belongs to a husband. The God of the universe has taken those who deserve to hear, You shall surely put, be put to death, your blood be upon you, and instead they hear, You are mine. Church, we are the Lord's treasure possession. So let me ask you can anyone take what belongs to the Lord? Anyone? If we're really His, is there anything we have to fear? If He really treasures us like He says He does, do we have any reason to doubt Him? I mean, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us. Let me ask you, what what do you fear? What fear controls your heart and life? What are you fretting over? What is consuming entirely too much of your mind? What keeps you from glorifying Christ and His gospel, maybe even this morning? What is it that tempts you to abandon your pursuit of holiness for something that promises more pleasure, more joy, than belonging to God the Father in Christ? Consider it. I'm going to give Paul the final word. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. He says, Praise God that though the law says, don't look over there, and we look, Jesus remained focused on his Father. And in him, we who deserve to hear, you shall surely be put to death. Here, you are mine forever. Praise be to God. Would you uh, stand as we say a word of prayer and our deacons come down to begin our Lord's Supper. Gracious Father, We confess together that we deserve to hear, we shall surely be put to death. Lord, we have earned that condemnation. That is exactly what we have merited. Our best attempts at being a good person, they have only earned us, our own blood on our own head. But Father, this morning we celebrate Jesus Christ. We celebrate that He surely was put to death, that we might be given life. We thank you that our blood was placed on him and his on ours. We thank you that we now belong to you. Would you help our weak hearts grasp that incredible, wonderful truth? We pray this in Jesus' holy name.